What is up, Bitcoiners? This is CK. I'm here as usual with Ansel. Uh, thank you for waiting an extra week for this show. Uh, we had an awesome episode with Matthew Misinskis of Crypto Voices. They just updated their legendary base money report that they do every single quarter. And we got the exclusive. He came on here to talk about it. He didn't talk about everything that we wanted to talk about regarding uh, specifically you know, what COVID has done to the money supply, but he did focus a lot on where Bitcoin is in relation to other base monies. So I think that this is a very helpful and dense show for you Bitcoiners. Ansel, what do you think? We could have gotten a little bit deeper into the inflation deflation debate on the base money stuff, but I think we talked about it just in a more um, high level way. So, um, you know, we talked, uh, dove into the base money. We dove into all sorts of stuff in foreign currencies versus uh, the dollar versus gold and silver. And yeah, then he gave our viewers on YouTube some eye candy. So if you guys um, aren't watching on YouTube, check out the Bitcoin magazine feed there and you can see all of his charts that we're talking about. He's walking through um, all these different charts. So it's really interesting. And uh, yeah, he's just a great dude. Great dude for coming on. Um, he is Bic the voice of Bitcoin. Uh, great voice, great character. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, Matt. Marty always tells him he has a, one of the sexiest voices in Bitcoin. I would have to agree. Um, but before we get into the show, let's talk about who makes this show possible. You guys have heard it before. It is Paxful.com. Paxful is one of the leading P2P exchanges out there, and they make it really, really easy for different people across the world to tap into Bitcoin's permissionless money liquidity network, right? That's the most important thing here. We talk about it on this podcast with Matthew. He talks about what makes these different currencies work and what's the most important thing in liquidity and being able to tap into this permissionlessly is what makes it happen. And Paxful makes it super easy for people across the world to onboard and super profitable for people with knowledge and expertise and assets to actually make money in the P2P economy. So go check out Paxful.com backslash podcast. If you are a merchant or if you want to make money trading Bitcoins, get on there. There's a lot of money to be made. And of course, if you are looking for a better way to transact, check out Paxful. It could be the answer. They have gift cards. They have all that kind of stuff. Uh, so again, Paxful.com backslash podcast. Next is BitcoinBlackFriday.com. So this is a really awesome project from Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, BitcoinBlackFriday.com has hundreds of merchants that are giving discounts for Bitcoin on different deals and different products. All of your favorite hardware wallets are on there. And the much anticipated Fold Sats back card is on there. And if you sign up for the wait list for the Fold Sats back card via BitcoinBlackFriday.com, you will be entered into a contest to win an entire Bitcoin. So go check out BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Go check out the Fold Sats back card on BitcoinBlackFriday.com and enter to win an entire Bitcoin over there. Um, and that's enough of me. This is really great content. Thank you to our sponsors and thank you to Matthew for, for jumping on. Let's just get right into it. Matthew, you've been uh, in Bitcoin for a long time. Uh, I would love to hear a synopsis of like your journey through Bitcoin, kind of your origin story. And then how did you get the podcast going? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ansel. I mean, definitely haven't been pod uh, casting as long as you have, but um, started, uh, I, I started hearing about Bitcoin over here in Eastern Europe, like 2011, 2012. Unfortunately, I remember very clearly it was sub, sub $10. First time I heard about it, did not act on it. Um, but uh, a couple years later, got in the market, you know, 2013, uh, during the, the, that head a year. Uh, and just, you know, spent those years sort of researching, exploring, trying to understand it more and more as everybody does down the rabbit hole. Uh, and then the start of 2017, I uh, actually started the podcast on January 9th. It was too pretentious to start on January 3rd. So I started on January 9th, the day that he uh, launched the uh, client, that he dropped the client on the world that anniversary. Uh, we, we started uh, the Crypto Voices pod. Actually, originally, the early episodes were me just narrating um, early uh, sort of articles about what Bitcoin is, some longer, like academic essays, some shorter ones. 
and then that year later on, I joined with my buddy, Fernando uh, Ulrich, who is an uh, Austrian economist down in Brazil. Um, we started to do uh, a weekly, bi-weekly show on, on Bitcoin economics, uh, similar stuff that you do uh, and, and know for sure and your listeners know. And, um, you know, having, uh, having guests and all that. And then from 2018, which is really probably the biggest, I guess, I don't know, contribution could say maybe made to the space was we had been talking about this concept of basic money and the monetary base and Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin's 21 million for a long time. And so I just wanted to sort of, uh, hash it out both in my head and, uh, you know, but both, both to sort of solidify what was in my head regarding uh, basic money and Bitcoin, but also just, you know, so everybody else could see that as well and have actually sort of hard numbers and not just kind of theory and talking about it. Um, because that is actually the money supply that is most like the most rock solid of, of, of sort of how money supplies are reported. And I know Ansel, you have theories about uh, different, different uh, sort of levels of money. What's, what's right, what's wrong. So yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Um, and yeah, I just dropped this actually. It was a good excuse, your show here. Um, usually central banks take about a month or so to publish uh, the prior month's data. And we do this quarterly. So this is the 10th release. And I just launched it uh, a couple hours ago on uh, big election day for us, for those of us in the US, uh, whatever. If you don't want to follow the politics, you can follow the money. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's just dropped uh, today. For the viewers out there, uh, you're going to be seeing this the day after. Um, so uh, we're going we're gonna to get this out quick, but you'll be seeing this on Wednesday, the day after the election. Cool. Yeah. So are you coming from an Austrian background? I know Fernando is uh, pretty Austrian in his, uh, in his background. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, subjective value, uh, you know, you, you want the good uh, more than the seller wants the good and vice versa. Um, and you know, uh, the, I guess you can jump right into probably what some listeners know by now. Um, there's kind of a schism in the Austrian school between, uh, fractional reserve banking and full reserve banking. Fernando and I are kind of known, I guess, for not really, um, we each have kind of slightly different views, but, uh, it's, it's not a problem in our view, but it's also not like, it's not something we go around like cheerleader or anything. It's just, um, that, there's a lot, it's, it's like quicksand that debate. We don't have to go too, too deep in that, but, but basically our, our view, uh, is, you know, economies can have, uh, fractional reserves. Maybe they won't maybe with a Bitcoin economy and certain layered, lo- layered locked versions of Bitcoin. You don't need to have this contentious fractional reserve layer, which is usually the demand deposit, uh, portion of M1, which is like really the contentious uh, issue. Um, but, you know, again, I, I don't want to go too deep on that. It's, it's not like anything that we like have debated or argued with anyone about. We've interviewed people that are pro fraction reserve. We've interviewed people that are pro full reserve, but uh, we ourselves uh, tend to not really think that that's uh, it's kind of just, a, it, it, it's just not worth <laughs> going into probably too much on this, but it's, it's not something we really sort of, uh, you know, pound the table on that fractional reserve banking is immoral and fraudulent and causes the business cycle. Yeah. I'm aware of the debate there. It just seems like it'll work itself out in a free market. It's not something that you can dictate. So. Yeah. That, um, well, that, that's actually just, this, just to clarify as well, like I said, I didn't make that point. I mean, I'm a big fan of the free banking school, like historical study of, of economies that did not have a central bank. So that's, that's mm-hmm. also where I'm coming from. Uh, there are plenty of like, you know, Dr. Selgin we've had on our podcast. He's a big free banker. He's also not a fan of Bitcoin. I mean, he likes Bitcoin, but he's also, he's always staying, saying in my view, quite uneducated things about Bitcoin and how it might not work. And the dollars network effect is so strong. So like economists d- disagree about all this stuff all the time and everybody, yeah. <laughs> everybody's got to have their own view and, and that's fine. I was going to say there's, so, there's another big schism in Austrian school and that's Bitcoin versus gold. Or is Bitcoin legitimate? I think so. Sure. Yeah, you're right in the middle of the two big schisms in Austrian school. All right, I'll yeah, hand it over to, to you. Tackle, we try to tackle all that, by the way, in the monetary base. I, and, and this latest one, yeah. we'll see if we get to if we have time. I actually called out some gold bugs, called out some silver bugs. Um, we'll see if we get to that. So I guess before we get into the monetary base, Matthew, I, I kind of want to ask you about the dollar's network effect. 
Um, you know, I think Ansel and I have been obviously bullish on Bitcoin, but we've also been some of the first people to really acknowledge the power of the dollar's network effects, how dominant monetary network effects, you know, seem to perpetuate themselves. Like, where do you kind of see the dollar? And then from there, let's jump into uh, to this monetary base that you just updated. Sure. Um, so obviously the dollar is huge. It's, uh, it's, it's called the reserve currency of the world for a reason, even if there's no real reserves there. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's called that for a reason. Uh, it's a huge network effect. And I know uh, if, if you go all the way up the, the monetary base aggregate stack as well, you can get into very murky um, definitions of dollars. Um, which we could talk about as well. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, I would like to actually next year, um, sort of try to get a full picture of how those different money supplies work. But with uh, the dollar in particular, it's actually impossible when you get to the broadest forms of money because you have uh, two, two things in particular that the Federal Reserve uh, stopped publishing in 2006, uh, stopped publishing the M3 definition in 2006. And uh, there were two reasons for that, as far as I can tell in my reading. One was the repo market was uh, incredibly uh, big, vast, and confusing, and they lost control of it. Uh, it's also repo market was a big problem in the financial crisis in 2008, ironically. And then the euro dollar market as well. They've just like completely given up on the euro dollar market. Um, that's just like huge. But anyway, uh, the dollar is huge. What people think of as the dollar is everywhere. We price gold in dollars, silver, oil. Everything is priced in dollars, um, but if you but but I also think that on the other side we should look at other currencies as well, particularly you know the euro, the yen, the yuan, and the pound sterling. The Indian rupee is getting up there as well, um, because those are in Switzerland, obviously, and some of the other you know ones you hear about, because those are free floating currencies and they are pretty big. And a lot of people, you know, again, don't kind of think of that in the full picture. So again, that's, that's what we try to do with this base, base money exhibit. So I don't know if I exactly answered your question. I definitely think the network effect of dollar is gigantic. Um, but it's not the only thing for sure. I mean, uh, and I could probably elaborate more as we get into the base money exhibit. Exactly. I, I would like you to uh, introduce your base money thing. People can find it on your website. I think it's, it's beautifully displayed in all these different tables that you can easily see uh, by country, by different weightings of how you would measure base money. Um, and then you have, a, you have a gold table, correct? And is it a Bitcoin table below that? So can you um, kind of maybe give us some takeaways of uh, what... Like, why, how did you lay it out? Why did you decide to do it in the way you did it? And um, yeah, go from there. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess just definitions to begin. Uh, Fernando and I, as I mentioned, like we've sort of been really from our first episode uh, and, and as long as I've been doing the show, we've been perhaps maybe the most vocal voice in the space about a topic that probably nobody knows anything about or doesn't really care much about. Except for maybe you, Ansel, and a few other people. But um, the, the concept the monetary base uh, in Bitcoin uh, as like comparing it to Bitcoin goes back even to the days of Hal Finney, actually. He uh, had a post in 2010 um, where he said something to the effect of he believes that Bitcoin could be destined to become the uh, kind of like the global reserve, uh, just like the dollar is today. Uh, and, and that would be just like base money is today. And he actually used that term, like base money or the monetary base. Other economists that we've interviewed as well, we've interviewed a lot. We've asked them all that question. Most of all agreed, uh, most of all agreed pretty much uh, about, about our comparison about Bitcoin and base money. So what is it? So the monetary base, uh, it's comprised of two things like in the fiat world that you think and hear and know about today. The one that everybody knows is like what's in your wallet, what's in a grocery store, till, what's in under your bed, mattress, uh, in a vault. That's a physical cash and coin that the central bank creates. And the second thing is this uh, is this more nebulous thing. It's called bank reserves, commercial bank reserves. And that's like, like a lot of things. It's electronic. It's a ledger. It's a line item that each bank holds with the central bank. So those two things together, the reserves and the currency form the monetary base. And that is basic money. And that literally is the cornerstone of the banking system that we are in. Like, it's just how it is. Uh, we can talk about my views on monopoly as well. Like, I don't think it's a good thing. 
this goes back to, you know, fractional reserve banking and stuff. Like, I don't think that you need a central bank issuing currency the way that they do. But um, that is just the way that the system works. Like, there's no further settlement that you can do in the system uh, if you're a person or if you're a bank other than with base money. So if you're a person, right, like the the most hardcore way that you can settle any debt is just like, give me the cash, right? And that's it. The transaction be done. It's final. And if you're a bank, uh, that's how literally the system settles at day's end with all of the other liabilities, like all the checks, all the SEPA payments. If you're in Europe, all the PayPal, the Venmo, uh, the ACHs, all that stuff like goes up, 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 up. And literally at the end of the day, there's only bank. Each bank has an account with their central bank, Fed in the U.S. And that's the master account. That's what it's called. And that's where the base money reserves sit as well, this electronic portion I mentioned. And that's how they settle uh, literally at the end of the day. So that's the definition uh, as well with gold and silver. Um, before 1971, as most gold bugs know, I think as most Bitcoin bugs know, uh, at least the dollar had some redeemability in gold. It wasn't from people, but it was from central banks. Uh, and so that was uh, the base money of the system at the time then at least had that linkage to gold. And then, you know, you go back like before Bretton Woods, uh, the interwar years, and then, you know, Roosevelt uh, canceled the, uh, devalued the dollar. It used to be about uh, $20 an ounce and devalued it to $35 an ounce. Um, and the gold standard before that in the late 1800s, and, and you know, the Federal Reserve as well was a part of that. And, and most people know that the gold standard really just sort of went down, down, down and went completely gone, basically. Uh, by 1971. But another thing that people actually don't know, I don't think about a lot is the US, like before gold, it was silver as well. And this is true. Like in ancient times, like everything's quoted in silver in ancient times, everything is in silver. And also the U S uh, was founded on silver standard. Like, like that would be like what Thomas Jefferson was thinking about. It was 375 grains of silver, which is like 80% of an ounce. And it was eventually revalued to 371 grains. Um, but it was in silver at the time. And then eventually in the 1800s, uh, most of the world started to go to gold and the U S had both, which is problematic. That's Gresham's law. Uh, bad money drives out good. I just saw a hor- by side side comment, by the way, I just came across my feeds. Hilarious. Um, Francis Coppola did a, uh, tweet Oh my God. So funny. Three years ago, quoting Gresham's law, which is the most absurd way to quote it. She said, yeah, she's like BCH Bitcoiners. You don't understand. BCH has more liquidity. Uh, this is Gresham's law, but in crypto form, you're screwed basically. Like, you know, just said this, not obviously that is the most hilarious prediction, right? It's like three years ago. And also like you should have let Segwit 2X activate. She said something like that. I, I, I retweeted it uh, just before the base money update. But then she says, because of liquidity, uh, you know, this is this is Gresham's law in crypto form. Like that is not at all the definition. Gresham's law very simply is bad money drives out good in the presence of a legal tender law. If you have the government saying gold's going to be worth this, silver's going to be worth this, you're going to have problems because the market can't operate with two fixed units of account. And that's that's what Gresham's law is. It's in the presence of legal tender. It's not even to do with liquidity. This is hilarious. Like just wrong on all fronts amazing bastardizing of economics uh this this uh, fine lady did with uh with the uh gresham law <laughs> comment and bch and bitcoin yeah this it, isn't it if the ratio is set so if the gold silver ratio is set at 15 or the silver to gold 15 to 1 and that you know as uh, that that the free market goes out of sync with that then one of those will disappear from circulation Yep. The bad, shift, that will be the case. Right. That will be the case where bad money drives out good, where people keep the bad money in the circulation, like to buy for stuff because it's overvalued. Um, and then the thing that's undervalued, they're going to hoard and keep it out, get it out of circulation or shift abroad, as you mentioned. Um, so yeah, that's Gresham's law and that's, that's what happens there. But anyway, as we see this with Bitcoin, no one's going to spend Bitcoin right now because it's in the right. process of, of driving out the bad money. Yeah, but there's no legal tender laws. So um, once the, if there's legal tender laws, that's when you really see a kick in. But it's it's not really that's not really the definition of uh, how yeah it works. exactly. I guess pretty much everyone if in in this specific uh, case is misquoting it unless they're actually talking about legal tender legal tender laws. Yep. Yeah, yep. but Bitcoin is horribly undervalued. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely, as we know. 
Well, let's get back onto the base money. So um, where this is kind of a, a creepy little question, but uh, it's been coming up a lot, at least in the content that I consume is the treasury general account. Uh, yeah. Usually that's, I think that's considered base money, um, but it's getting really big at 1.7 trillion right now. So would yeah. you put that into base money as well? No, and it's actually not. Uh, I can I can explain. It's actually not. Um, basically, so I'll, I'll try this really quick. And you, I know this, I'm not preaching to you guys. You guys know this, but like, uh, as we know, the government doesn't do anything, right? The government does nothing. It only pays for stuff. It's the only thing it can do. It can hire people and pay for stuff. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't like build houses. It doesn't do anything. So when the government wants to do stuff, it will spend. And when it wants to earn stuff, it will tax, right? As we know, when there's a shortfall, there's either two ways to fill that gap. One is to borrow directly in the treasury market, or the other is to print. Now, the way it works today is borrowing and printing actually occur at the same, uh, the same time. Borrowing is actually first. So the Fed does not partake in like what's called the initial auction of treasury bills, bonds, doesn't partake in it. They just, it, they're fed, uh, the uh, treasury is issuing bills once a week, bonds. This happens all over the world, as we know, Greek debt, stories about all this. That's the initial auction of, of treasury debt. And so that, that's where banks are partaking, pension funds, big companies, they're buying that debt directly at auction, primary market, auction market. The secondary market, that's when the Fed gets involved. That is uh, the open market operations where actually more happens in, in the repo market, um, which is more short term. But if like 2008, big long, a lot of long term stuff the Fed took, put, took on its balance sheet, that's open market operations. That's that's the secondary market. That's not primary. Like So that's when the Fed gets involved. That's when they buy those bonds from banks. They literally take that, that reserve, those bank reserves uh, that are created out of nothing like that. That's where they've they create the, you know, the money out of thin air. So they buy, they take bonds off of the bank's balance sheet and they give them bank reserves. So that's that base money they're inserting into the bank. That's how it works with, with banks. And this is where you can see how it all relates like in the, the Fed and the banking system. Now, the Treasury general account, that does not touch the banking system until the Treasury starts to pay for stuff. So now this is like unprecedented. I definitely agree. And it seems like a number like you want to like, take heed of or like think about but what happens is imagine like so so the the treasury general account just like base money it's a liability of the fed they owe someone and the treasury has the asset so the treasury has a general accounts an asset the fed liability let's say that the fed just pumps in a trillion dollars into the treasury general account nothing happens at that point it's just the fed has a new liability treasury has a new asset nothing happens when the treasury starts paying for stuff, so think like stimulus checks, stimulus checks, right? Once those stimulus checks get sent out by the treasury in this account that it just got made up from the Fed, then those two things start to decrease by the amount of stimulus checks that are deposited into the system. The treasury general account and the, uh, is, is the Fed's liability. The treasury general account on the treasury side is the treasury's asset. So they, they balance. And when the uh, checks and things that the treasury actually pays for goes in, that's how it gets into the banking system. It will, people start depositing those checks and then those liabilities will come down for the Fed and the asset will come down for the treasury. But that will take time, like a lot of time. And you've already seen it uh, in like the M1 and the M2 supplies. I'm sure you've seen that. They've been bumped up since like March, like massively. That's because those are like, unlike, the bank reserves, which aren't circulating uh, to the general public, when the treasury sends out checks to people, like literally, that's the helicopter money. That's the airdrop of money. That's how. That's the mechanism how how it gets into the the economy, and it may go into base money. It may not. I mean, people could just leave it like in a in a bank account, and then you have like just a new deposit, a new demand deposit. People deposit checks. Some people may turn that check like at the cashiers. Or the, Western Union or whatever, they may cash it, get base money. So that money could go into like base money. It could go in, it more likely not just stays as, a, as an account in people's accounts, like as a, as a demand deposit. And then it's in the system. So that's why you don't count the treasury account as a, as a part of base money because it, it does eventually make its way to the system. It's just like slower, it's different. And it's going to take a long time, by the way for those things to work themselves out. So yeah, it's a huge number. It's definitely something to like pay attention to. Um, 
but it doesn't actually make its way into the banking system until people deposit treasury checks into their bank. Then it's in the banking system. Then you can start running through like, you know, credit and loans and debt. And, uh, and maybe I'll pick up some base money with that check, uh, some, some cash and coins. So that's, that's the treasury account. And that's why it's not in base money. And all central banks have a, a treasury account, by the way, you can see it. They have account with banks, like the banking reserves, right? And then they have all the other component of the balance sheet. They have this government account, but that's just really, it's, it's a, it's a, oh, and another, this is why I brought, sorry, I get on these tangents. I, I brought up, yeah. So I brought up uh, the auction at the beginning for a reason. Uh, usually when the treasury cannot fulfill its expense, you know, remember it needs to pay for stuff, whatever it is like unemployment or, you know, subsidies to corn growers, whatever it is, the treasury needs to pay for it. It, 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 it it's expenses. It's got to pay for taxes. That shortfall is it always has. We know it has It's huge debt these days everywhere. Uh, you, you get that difference through the treasury market. And again, the fed doesn't take, doesn't step in until the secondary market, but the treasury gets it directly from banks, whatever. And the treasury account is just a way it's basically a way the agreement that it's an agreement that the central bank and the treasuries have to say, okay, like we, we know you need this faster than a treasury auction. So we're just going to create, we're going to give you these reserves, but it's not reserves like the way bank reserves are. It's not like banks can't touch that money. They just can't touch the money. Only when the Fed, only when the treasury starts paying for stuff, that's when it gets into the banking system. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot to dive into on that. I don't think we have enough time to go through all the nitty gritty on exactly how the reserves get there and how they would be inflationary once they enter the market. But there's a big, huge segment other than the treasury, treasury general account that I think needs to be addressed. And that is like reserves held in foreign banks. So not just at the fed, but you know, there's dollar reserves held all around the world at different central banks um, and different major banks, you know, the too big to fails in every country. So um, how would you like, how do you classify those types of the, it's the offshore dollar market. Uh, how do you think that plays into base money, M0, M1, M2? Do you mean like Euro dollars or the accounts yes. that, that central banks have of dollars? Um, well, both. Cause I'm, um, well, don't, Foreign central banks have accounts at the Fed as well, correct? They do, yeah. And the, the, those are usually for like clearing and swap arrangements and liquidity arrangements. Uh, but I, really quickly for that point, I think regarding uh, how I view um, how I view like the, the whole base money picture is I've only counted currencies that are free-floating. So you'll see, like, you, if you look hard, you, you might miss one that you think is going to be there. And top 30 ranked by GDP. Next year, I'll get, I'm going to get even more. So it'll be very exciting for us uh, monetary geeks here. But um, cool. only free-floating currencies or someone, somewhat of a free-floating currency. So the, the yuan, Chinese yuan, is not free-floating, but they do have huge reserves of treasury bonds and bills on the balance sheet. No one knows exactly, like, the breakdown between euro, yen, and dollar debt they have that keep it actually secret, but they like, well, the central banks know, but we don't know. Um, That's on the asset side, but still you can, you can tell that the yuan has been floating since 2005. If you look at a chart, it's not pegged anymore. So it's only currencies that, that move in the market is what we track. The other, there's a few others like Hong Kong dollar, Danish kroner, some of the, uh, uh, Middle Eastern currencies like Saudi Arabia, the Emirates. Uh, these are kind of big currencies, um, but all of those are pegged, boarded, like you said, like definitely reserved accounts with the Fed, reserve accounts with the uh, European Central Bank. So they're they're pegged. Now, it's not only reserves, not only that like high-powered money. There's also like uh, bonds, government bonds that they put there as well. Short-term T-bills, like kind of the base of the CAPM, like the most liquid reserves. And it gets confused. It's a bit of an artsy thing. Like it would be better if they were all hundred percent reserved in cash. Then you say, okay, there's definitely no reason to include them. I, I do want to get them in the future. Like Hong Kong is an example. Like that's a popular currency, but it's a current, it's a, it's a currency board to the U S dollar. It's basically U S dollar with different pictures on it for cultural reasons. And that's, that's just how it is. So I don't count those. I, I presume that those central banks are like, as they are, as they don't 
as they don't float in the market. Like if you look at my charts, a flat line, that's basically the dollar. And anytime that they uh, have demand one way or the other for the currency, they're either buying or selling like deep, deep reserve assets in their, uh, in their coffers. So that's like the central bank version of, um, of reserves and like the, the, as you, as you mentioned, like different central banks have reserve accounts with the fed and other central banks. So that, that's that. Now, as far as all the other dollar denominated deposits uh, across the world, that's like just a complete mess. That is like, that's very hard to track. I don't know how many Euro dollars in the world. I mean, the Panama paper, so Euro dollars for those listening, I, th- I think probably a lot of your listeners answer no, I, I imagine, but like for those listening don't know, Euro dollars are basically dollars in foreign banks. So dollars in a bank or foreign institution that has, the Fed has no control over. And it's not only in European banks. It's just how it started. So like it could be in Japanese banks, primarily it's in Caribbean banks. So think about the Panama Papers. There's like 30 trillion reported there. Were those all dollars denominated? Maybe not, probably not. But um, it's just, it's a derivative of the dollar. That's all that it is. And that's, that's way far away. Like I I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, comment to like know where all those dollars are, how they're created and everything. But yeah, that is, uh, that is what you call the broad money, uh, money supply, which is typically M3 used to be now it's kind of M2 because they realize they've lost control of calculating all this stuff, central banks. Um, but yeah, so the, that's that's what's the what's called the euro dollar, and that is literally just if you log in, see pieces of uh, you see USD written on your screen next to your account, and you live in Europe, it's a euro dollar. But your bank might you know your bank definitely doesn't have dollars like sitting there uh, reserved, which is fine. It's just um, it's just creating that with certain financial instruments, which could get quite complicated. And if someone really did want to claim a lot of us dollars on those banks, uh, it might get complicated like kind of quickly and it might not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just sort of where, where it fits. Like, so there's dollars in reserve accounts at central banks and there's dollars in regular banks, institutions abroad that are like, there's a lot. Yeah. Maybe, uh, I know Jeff Schneider is a big fan of this one to make new M measurements. So, M5, M6, M7, because of all these different exotic types of derivatives. I did see a statistic recently that might be interesting is um, uh, U.S.-centered banks are now getting a lot of their funding from overseas. So it's like those, the offshore dollars are not really fungible onshore, but somehow these banks are getting a lot of their funding through this offshore market. So I don't know, it's something that, Obviously, I'm really yeah. big into, and I think it, it kind of complicates the whole question of what is considered money at this time. But I think, Christian, do you want to transition us back to Bitcoin? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that one of the best ways to kind of like see Bitcoin in the bigger picture is to actually just look at it on your base money chart. I don't mean to put you on the spot, Matthew, but um, you wouldn't happen to have that handy on your screen. Maybe you could share it. Not on the spot at all this is putting it all together uh gold silver and bitcoin as you can see you know massive like pareto distribution this is in dollar trillion you know us dollar equivalent you got the 30 monetary basis here the total this quarter is 25 trillion dollars so we haven't even put a dollar value on it yet it's 25 trillion dollars if you added all these things up you see the massive Pareto distribution you see that bitcoin is uh coming uh you know marching along from from right to left on this chart and it's currently number 10 after the fiat currencies. There's nine fiat currencies ahead of it. And then it's number 12 if you count gold and silver as far as, you know, U.S. dollar equivalent value. And the gold and silver I've worked through as well. I get that data from an industry expert. His name is Nick Laird. I worked through a lot of other calculations trying to get something that's comparable. For a while, I had industrial value in there, but I took that off. Um, so it's about... 10 to 15% of the gold market is removed because it's a presumed loss or it's to industry of that 10 trillion. So 10 to 15% of it, all the gold ever mined is removed. And then for silver as well, 10 to uh, 50%, about 50% is removed there to get to that around 700 billion figure. It's less than seven, little bit less than 700 billion. Um, and the big one there is under- Can I jump yeah. in here real quick? Yeah. Sorry. I think it's pretty interesting that silver is so small compared to gold. 
Yeah. Uh, and silver was the unit of count for so many centuries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's also ramped up in its industrial use over the last 50 years uh, mm -hmm. as well. It's another thing to keep in mind. Um, we can talk about the uh, inflation rates in a second, um, which I think we'll also illuminate on that one. But um, yeah, so silver is, uh, uh, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So including gold, it's ranked eight. Bitcoin ranked 12. And by the way, like it's on the cusp of the Russian ruble. Very exciting. Never passed the Russian ruble. It has passed the Canadian dollar at some point, but then Canada started a lot of money printing this year and held its value above Bitcoin. But it's never passed the Russian ruble. So both of them literally like neck and neck, um, you know, a little bit above 250. This is obviously, it's hard to see all this rounding. Looks like 0.3, but you know, a little bit above 250 billion. And, um, and that's where it is. So that's where it sits. And that's literally what like all the major currencies in the, the world look like. And you can obviously see that the four big ones are the yen, the euro, the dollar, and the yuan, the Chinese yuan. And um, again, like, does it make sense to put this all in dollars? I think so, because it's like the global unit of account. But like the people, you know, does the Chinese central bank think about it this way? Probably not. Probably not. But um, but this, these are the money supplies, really the base, the basic le level of the banking system. Like you can't settle any, anywhere beyond this. If you're a bank or an individual, um, you can't settle anything more uh, like it's the ultimate sort of form of settlement. So this is trailing 12 right. month inflation for all of these. And again, when I say inflation here, this is money growth. So nothing, nothing here has to do with prices. This is literally money growth of euros, yen, dollars, uh, Thai bot. Um, this is literally a units upon units. You can see some big numbers, like 366% compared to a year ago, the Canadian dollar. I'm not going to read them all, but obviously Bitcoin compared to a year ago, it's just under 3%. And then you have gold, it's 1.8%. And silver, this is the interesting one. Uh, this is where a lot of gold bugs, gold bugs like to sort of poo-poo on silver. I think it's safe for gold bugs, I think it's safe for silver bugs. Uh, it's just the fact of the matter is like a huge stock, like, you know, gold by price is 80x silver today. Um, so there's a lot more value that's held in an ounce of gold compared to an ounce of silver. So there's a lot of silver that needs to be moved around. And as you mentioned, Ansel, like over the centuries, um, that's just, that's shifted. Like it used to just be silver that you move around and then you started to move around a lot of, a lot of gold, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a huge stock of silver and a relatively small flow every year. And that's just what it is. Um, you know, I can give you, it's like gold the past uh, 50 years, about 1.8%, uh, but even the last like 180 years, 200 years, also 1.8%. And then um, I could give you like 500 years of gold, it'd be like 0.7%. So you can kind of pick your stock to flow. I think some people are a bit inconsistent with that sometimes, but you can find different numbers. Just take the inverse of that one divided to get that. Uh, but I also have a stock to flow uh, summary as well here, where I do put it in stock to flow if you want to see it. Um, but that's not as interesting as this is uh, just the base money now. So we had we had gold in there on an annual basis. We had silver on an annual basis. This is annual numbers, and, and uh, the way that I calculate this is is the monthly growth of all these units. And then you have the only way that you can make it comparable is you do have to weight them by their USD equivalent monetary base. But it's not like I'm taking the you know it's 25 trillion now, but I'm not taking like what's the USD equivalent you know, a year ago. It's not doing that. You, you, you have to take the actual unit growth of all the currencies and then you weight them. You get a different, it's a, it's a stronger calculation that way. But anyway, so these are annualized compounded, like this is, this is the compound growth of all of these currencies each year. Um, again, cause it's, it's compounded from monthly, monthly growth. So if you could, you can derive doubling times from these figures, uh, lots of interesting things, which I also have at other parts of the presentation. Anyway, you see in 1999, there's a big bump. That's because of Y2K. People were freaking out. They took out a lot of cash. Um, you see 2008, people were freaking out. Banks, uh, that was the first time, you know, QE really started. Uh, major banks around the world flooded the system with reserves, um, although they didn't lend them out, which is another story I think Anzal alluded to. 
mostly because they get paid interest, which they started doing in 2008 as well on those reserves, which was uh, complicates the picture even more with fiat-based money. But yeah, they never got interest paid on their balances by the central bank itself, competing with its own treasury until 2008. And then now, obviously, with COVID, they tried, they really tried to wind it down the last couple of years. You can see it was like historically low levels of monetary inflation uh, the last two years, 2018, 2019. But um, in 2020, with, uh, with COVID, uh, unfortunately for the world, I mean, I'm not saying like I'm a fan of these numbers being huge. Um, that, that's just skyrocketed again. And then this line is about 12.2%, 12.3%. That is the compounded growth rate of all fiat money for as much data as I have over 50 years. So that's a big number. 12.2% is a doubling uh, rate of... I should just be able to say this offhand, but I want to say it exactly. Six and years or so? Six years, six, yeah, six, six years. So that is a doubling. That's basically what you're looking at with all these numbers, net, net. Uh, I like doubling time a lot to derive from these figures. So 12.2% compounded, you can find a doubling time. Six years, um, that is uh, how fast uh, it's taken for the money supply to double uh, on balance over the last 50 years. It doubles every six years. And, and it, this is US, US centric right here or US only? No, this is the globe. This is oh, all. Okay. Planet. Okay. This is all top 30, all top okay. 30. Yeah. So the US is a little bit less. It's, uh, it's a doubling rate of, I think it's 8% or doubling rate of whatever that is, nine years, maybe. Um, I think it's like nine years. And, you know, you can go and, and check all the other doubling times as well. But, you know, if you want to see like what Bitcoin price is at this like gold level at like you know, how much central banks hold of gold, what would the Bitcoin price be to match that, uh, to match the level of silver? Uh, it's, it's past. Here's another one. Let's, let's do one more. Yeah. So here we got Bitcoin market price inferred to match precious metal stocks. All right. So I got price inferred on the left axis and I got on the right axis uh, market cap. And again, obviously, we're just taking the, the Bitcoins today, you know, 18 and a half plus million coins and uh, taking the USD value of the cap of all these things. So, again, the ones that I'm, I'm using for gold and silver are the second ones of each. So I'm using this what I call available. It's jewelry and bullion, basically, of gold. And then the second one, silver avail available. You can see my mouse, right? Can you see it? Yeah. So uh, silver available, jewelry and bullion, the second one. A uh, little under $700 billion. So at that price, Bitcoin will pass these levels. All right. So you see there, there is silver actually still in central banks. It's like a rounding error. It's nothing, but it's well past that. There's a category that Nick Laird does. It's, it's like all ETFs. When you hear of this companies like gold money that will hold your gold and silver, uh, the Perth Mint, anybody that reports. It's not the London Bullion Market Association that's like incredibly trans, a non-transparent, incredibly murky. There's lots of private bullion that's not reported, but of everything that's reported worldwide, it's past uh, silver there. And again, it's a rounding error on the, on the market cap. Um, and then 0 0.1, you know, 100 billion here is all monetary silver. So you see much small, how small that is. That's just coins and bars and silver. It's past that. And then up next would be the gold in like ETFs, uh, repositories. Again, same thing, Perth Mint, same institutions, gold money. It's, it's very close to passing that. Um, and then you got, you know, silver jewelry and bullion together. You see how, how big silver jewelry is, if that's just bullion, right? That's them both together. And then just on the, on the, up the line of the same categories. And these are like all the different ways that you can possibly measure gold and silver. Um, and, and these are the prices and then the, the market cap that Bitcoin would need to be at to match, uh, these, these, uh, stocks stocks of, of money. this is an awesome chart and you know i think someone like preston pish would really enjoy seeing this just because he likes to think of different ways to uh measure bitcoin outside of the dollar just because the dollar is such a kind of corrupt unit at this point um matt i mean the the I love this. I love kind of just seeing your visualizations, the way that you guys kind of like break down this information. I know you're a little apologetic about using the dollar as a unit of account, but I find it extremely helpful. Almost all of our brains are in dollars, right? Like, isn't it like 80%, 90% of contracts are denominated in dollars? So it, I think it's, it's super, super helpful. And for the viewers, you got to go to Crypto Voices Twitter and uh, CryptoVoices.com and 
check out all of this, all this stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. I mean, thanks for uh, having me on and definitely happy to chat about it anytime. And, uh, people can DM me DMs open on Twitter. Uh, I'm happy, happy to answer and answer any other questions that you have regarding this. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think we, we would like to kind of conclude just like talking about, uh, your view of Bitcoin, right? Like, you know, obviously in us denominated terms, we are really close to surpassing that 14 K area. I feel a lot of momentum there. Um, you have a very good understanding of, you know, what all of these base monies are doing based on kind of like what you can see. Um, what are your kind of predictions for Bitcoin in, in the next two, three, four years? Yeah, I mean, always a difficult uh, question, right? Making predictions. It's not, I'll say right off the bat, you know, it's not definitely my forte. It's not something I try to do. And, and I will say as well, just a caution again, maybe I didn't explain it so well regarding, you know, why I was... Uh, cautious of of defining these things in dollars is I really do believe that um, you know in this subjective theory of value you know the Austrian school like um, it's it's just this this concept that you think like money is a measuring stick uh, it's said a lot that's actually you know there's a there's some subtle differences there where you know you can kind of say okay like Bitcoin is like kind of like the the North Star gold is the North Star the dollar is the North Star for a lot of people that these these sort of value uh, measurements, but really like, obviously everyone, you know, some people can go out and buy Amazon stock. Some people go out and buy Tesla stock. Some people can sell Tesla stock. There's just, there's no way to say that, okay, this is definitely the value and this is what it's going to be. And even if it goes like from quarter to quarter, year to year, like we can track it. It's interesting, but I just try to be sort of consistent on that, uh, that it's, that I'm not really sure. And, and I, I know you asked about Bitcoin, but I do want to say what I said before, cause I was calling out gold bugs and also silver bugs. Like here's a perfect example. We're looking at these supplies can help you. It's like for um, the last 10 years, I'm sure you guys have heard this as well. Like the old uh, ratios, like the historical natural ratios of uh, silver to gold as far as ounces or gold to silver as far as price was something like 16 to one. Uh, and so gold right now is 80 to one uh, gold price to silver price. So silver's like, oh, it's got to go back to it. You know, all these silver bugs and it's got to go back to its old uh, ratio, you know, that's a, if it goes back to 16 to one, it's a five X increase in silver price. We're going to be, you know, millionaires, billionaires, whatever. But if you look at a little bit deeper and you look at the actual supply of those things, uh, it's about nine to one. Uh, and there you can, you can see those stocks right there. If you look at the top two gold, the top two silver, those are about nine to one. And so you'd actually need a decrease in the silver price to get back to a, uh, I think it was like 45%. If you do the top, the top each uh, that I showed there in the last chart, uh, maybe like minus 5% silver price. If you look at just available gold versus available silver. Why do I point all that out? Uh, like you'll hear so many financial, like invest investment advisors, uh, investors, and we've all heard this, right? They're just, they're making the case. They're trying to say, okay, this is going to happen with GDP. This is going to happen with the dollar, whatever. Um, I really do think a lot of that is spurious. I think that we cannot predict the future. I think the best we can do is try to measure some of these things. I really like looking at a lot of these inflation reports from a lot of Austrians, Austrian type folks, people we've had on, you know, like Steve Hankey does an inflation report. Um, there is uh, uh, the Chapwood Index, John Williams. They have a lot of interesting reports about inflation that I think uh, could come. I'm not saying that they will come, but definitely I think they could come and, Obviously, we know that Bitcoin uh, is a potential hedge against that. So I think those things are important to look at. One thing, Ansel, you wanted to talk about, like the inflation deflation debate. Yeah. A little bit. Um, it's very possible that like we could just go into this sort of malaise. Like I used to think about this, like monetary looks like Japan. Fiscally, it kind of looks like Europe. Like you just start taxing a lot. People become unproductive especially with this COVID, like people aren't producing as much. So you're taxing a lot like Europe or you're just printing a lot like Japan. Um, the free market always does bring, the free market actually always does deflate, right? It always deflates. It, it's, it brings costs down and it brings quality up. So is a, it, I view it as sort of two competing forces. So this is kind of how I would maybe wrap this mm -hmm. up. Like I view, uh, you know, you, you could look at anything over like a hundred years, like making breakfast or I don't know, like the costs of, you know, 
cooking an egg, frying an egg versus like raising a chicken 500 years ago. I mean, everything is easier. It's cheaper. It's better. It's more efficient. The quality is up. The cost is down. That's what the market does. But the other side, the monopoly, the special privilege that uh, certain institutions get from the government, they just do the opposite. So they increase it. Uh, that's what inflation is. And yeah, a lot of that inflation hasn't been released uh, yet, even in 10 years. So they're trying to slowly take it off. But you saw that what happened in the last two years, they tried to like let it sort of burn off their balance sheet. And then another crisis happened. They started inflating again. So I kind of see this like malaise of probably a combination, like high tax, like Europe and high printing, like Japan has shown. Um, gold has done extremely well in that scenario. Even silver has done extremely well. So we've only seen Bitcoin for, you know, 11 years um, now. So I think that, uh, I think that, uh, that, that is looking quite good. Obviously all these things are looking quite good. I, I always want to be careful. Like, you know, I don't want to say like, Oh, it's like, look at how high these inflation numbers is. Definitely. Bitcoin is, is going to be screaming up. A lot of people try to do that, but I do like to at least calculate it and see. And yeah, I think, I think probably some malaise, probably some fiscal, uh, fiscal like thing in Europe taxing and then monetary like thing in Japan. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm at the Japanification and that Bitcoin is the source of optimism and growth. And so all these people, they, they'll see the malaise of the old system or they'll see the vibrancy of the new Bitcoin system. And so people yeah. will just come over. Uh, Bitcoin will be where all the growth is uh, as the old system just kind of stagnates into nothing. I, I, don't, I really don't see an inflationary end. I see uh, a deflationary type malaise, like you said. Yeah, I think it could be, it could be both. I don't know, like you could argue that, I think it's, I think it's both, honestly. You could argue that Japan would be even lower right now if the central bank hadn't been printing as much as it had. Um, like there's, you know, it's an aging population, declining population, they're not producing as much. Um, so I get, I get what you're saying there, but I just, I think that it's both. And I think that the free market is always going to take costs down. And even when there's problems in the free market, you know, you write down the debt and the asset value probably falls too. You thought it was good. You thought you were all good, but the revenues now are falling. Debt's getting, uh, you know, in an, in a, if we had a free market, right, we would have entrepreneurs would see that there's problems like what we thought were, you were going to get out of your business. You're not getting. So you got to write down the asset, write down the debt. That's deflation. That's what should happen in a free market. But the central bank will do the opposite. And, you know, consumer credit, uh, corporate credit in the U.S. like those are still they are increasing. Um, M two helicopter money, all that stuff is happening. And by the way, one other thing, sorry, uh, I I totally think that the from that side, this yeah, this is one thing that's probably good to share. I think that from this the monetary side, we're just beginning to see some of the creative things that the Fed can do. Like they just started buying corporate bonds, corporate ETFs. They haven't even bought stocks yet. They indirectly on real estate, which they bought from these, you know, crappy mortgage backed securities 10 years ago, you know, via the government agencies, but like they haven't bought, like they could go in real estate, they could go in stocks, they could do everything that Japan did and more. So I think, I think we probably haven't even gotten started with some of the asset purchases that uh, seem crazy now. Um, we just, you know, yeah. look back in the future and be like, yeah, this, this was nothing yet. I think that's possible. Where do you see the emerging markets versus the developed markets and how they adopt Bitcoin? Because uh, we've seen recently with Iran, right? They are accepting it as reserves, I think, right? On, in their central bank. Um, we see a, so uh, we can I, see like a- actually, Sorry, just to interrupt you there. I actually, I've, it's a shame to say, because I look at Iran's balance sheet. I haven't seen it as, I mean, is it- have they said specifically they're reserving Bitcoin? I think it, it's a proposal that is being pushed through their, whatever their decision-making legislative process. So it's and we know not it's official. Much, yeah. Like we, we know that definitely it's coming for sure. Yeah. yeah. So is, I can see like emerging markets maybe going that way. And then uh, the developed markets mainly going this balance sheet accumulation way the, the with micro strategy and stuff. So I don't know. Do you see any sort of dichotomy how the different countries around the world will adopt Bitcoin? I mean, let's just assume everyone's going to adopt Bitcoin in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. So uh, how do you see that working? Is that clear? 
Yeah, good question. Again, I I probably would give a rambling answer if I went too long. I don't I don't know. I think um, I think it's awesome what MicroStrategies did. I think the treasury corporate treasury type accumulation of Bitcoin in in developed markets is absolutely amazing. I did not see that coming at the start of the year. I think it's awesome. Um, I think uh, I think will it will be interesting with you know lightning. I don't know, like, has it gone as fast as people hoped to slow? You know, we, we, when we think developing markets, we're thinking, I, I know you mentioned the central bank level with like Iran and, and stuff. And we know like North Korea and Belarus, again, some of these like countries know something's going on there. But uh, as far as like we think of Bitcoin as like kind of the, the medium exchange function already for emerging uh, markets, they are very happy to hold dollars compared to their... Mm-hmm bad currencies at the moment you know even places like argentina which is a top 30 floating currency they're happy to hold do- dollars brazil um it could, it's the same thing you'll get that treasury effect on a personal level like the personal balance sheet holding bitcoin as far as like the medium exchange adoption it definitely anybody's guess i think it, if you had looked back in the last 10 years compared to that hal finney quote that i said at the beginning of this interview this is exactly what he predicted. It's just happening in the Bitcoin environment where Bitcoin literally is the base money and we have Bitcoin banks. They're just called exchanges and they're growing and a lot of people are getting accounts with them. And yeah, we have Bitcoin being traded on like, you know, local Bitcoins and huddle huddle. We have some issues with that. We have state trying to get involved and we have, you know, BitMEX uh, being, you know, uh, threatened with criminal charges, all these things, which are very interesting. But the, um, the the way that I think it scales still for a long time, both in developed and developing, is probably via exchanges, which is still via that's a Bitcoin banking system. Um, and we probably have more hacks, probably have more problems, uh, but definitely. Uh, again, I, I I know I ramble and go on tangents. I'm trying to sum it up easy and nice nicely, but I'm not sure I'll do it. It's late here. Compile well, this monetary base thing. <laughs> let me let me jump in really quick and um, just to kind of add on, like you said that you know Argentina, they're happy to have dollars. A lot of these organizations are happy to be plugging into the U.S. system. Uh, in Intel's most recent podcast, he actually talked about and critiqued Raul Paul's um, analysis of central bank digital currencies and like the SWIFT problem and all this stuff. And I really, you kind of, you can say it yourself, but the conclusion was that like countries are opting into the dollar system because it's the most liquid. It's the most connected. They're benefiting from using the most liquid monetary system. And that system is permissioned. It's flawed. There's a lot of things that are um, funky about it, Um, but it's still, you know, all of these countries are using it because it's the best system still. I don't know if if that uh, resonates with you at all. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm. I'm. And by far from cheerleading uh, the dollar system. Far from doing that. Uh, just this stuff takes time. You know, these are, as Andreas said, and probably some different, uh, different uh, metaphor. But I mean, this is like the oil tanker industry. You know, this is not like this. This, this ships move very, very slow. Um, you can see it with gold. You can see it with silver. Like, you know, you had Warren Buffett, who's always poo pooed on gold, and now he's buying gold miners. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's unexpected things. Expect the unexpected, whatever. I'm not sure how I can I can edit in a fun way, but I definitely agree with with what you guys are saying. And uh, if we can provide any insight more on some of the values of some of these these actual uh, stocks of uh, monetary assets, that's kind of the goal of what uh, what the exhibit is that we've done. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for diving into these nuanced and rather uh, dense topics here. Um, I think that the YouTube viewers are especially going to appreciate um, the visuals. Um, and, you know, for everyone, you guys got to follow this guy. You got to follow Crypto Voices and go to his website. Uh, get that awesome research. Matt, why don't you, uh, why don't you plug yourself and uh, let's close this one out. DMs open. Twitter is uh, at crypto underscore voices, cryptovoices.com, cryptovoices.com slash base money for those exhibits uh, that we talked about today. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of overlap with stuff that you guys talk about, stuff that Ansel talks about. Um, so if you haven't heard about it, hopefully you'll be interested to check it out. And thank you guys. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And you can find me at CK underscore snarks. You can find Ansel at Ansel Lindner. You can find the show at Bitcoin Magazine. All right. Have a good one, y'all.
a quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.